You are listening to Down Home. Welcome to Down Home, the Nova Scotian experience from two black men. I'm Derek Wise, and on behalf of Jay Jones, thank you for joining us. Former Poet Laureate for Nova Scotia, L. Jones, joins the podcast this week to discuss the origins of her activism. The Mount St. Vincent professor continues to be an outspoken advocate for BIPOC communities in the province. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Down Home Podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Today, we have Val Jones, uh, who is an activist, poet, spoken word poet, uh, also a professor. So hello, L. Jones. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Well, during this podcast, uh, we've been sort of uh, looking to people uh, from Nova Scotia or, or sort of who represent Nova Scotia and their black history. And you were one of our uh, people that crossed our minds. So thanks for joining us. So I'm just going to jump right into it. So at the age of 13, you read an Oscar Wilde book. And um, after I, I read this in an interview, interview, and after you read the book, you said you were sort of overcome with this feeling to uh, become a poet. Can you talk about what made you sort of express your your thoughts and your words? Yeah, well, actually, um, it's true about poetry in that story, but um, perhaps more importantly, what it did was um, introduce me to prison activism. So um, I actually read this when I was in Trinidad. I was um, It was the first time we were, we were able to go back. It was my grandmother's 90th birthday. My mom is from Trinidad. Um, she had to leave very early, obviously, to get an education. She wanted to take science, and there was no opportunities for girls on the island, so she had to mm-hmm. leave at 15. And obviously wasn't able to afford to go back. Her father died. She couldn't go back. Um, so I didn't go to Trinidad until I was 13 years old. And while we were there, obviously you're in the house. And I had always grown up seeing Oscar Wilde's book on the shelf. So it looked really adult to me. And I decided I was going to read um, this biography of him. And uh, it had lines from Reading Jail in it, Ballad of Reading Jail, which is a poem about Oscar Wilde's incarceration. And I was mm-hmm. at that age where your mind really opens up to issues. So I do think it very much had to do with being in Trinidad, to be honest. I think like experiencing my family, um, that homecoming, but then the mix of that where, you know, like you don't know your family because you're part of the diaspora and you've been moved and like, mm-hmm. oh, you can't go outside because it's dangerous. You know, like those kind of narratives. Um, I do think that that contributed to perhaps a search for meaning I was having at that age. So yeah, mm-hmm. I read the poem and it just was the first issue, like an adult issue that I really understood mm-hmm. that lessons are wrong. Um, yeah. And that really, you know, and then I, that year we had to do an essay in social studies and I did like women in prison, you know, everyone else did like photoshopping in magazines. <laughs> I'm doing like, you know, the housing arrangements for women, how women should be able to parent their children. So it's something that, um, yeah, really formed my thinking about justice issues through art and mm-hmm. how you could be spoken to through art to understand mm-hmm. issues and then bring those issues to other people. So it, I always say I became an abolitionist at age 13 uh-huh. and that, manifested itself later in my life through spoken word and poetry um, mm-hmm. so yeah that's kind of the the fuller version of that story but yeah oh, wow. cool now you were born in wales yeah so my mom yeah. this is a diaspora story my mom um like i said she had to leave trinidad 
um, my aunt was living in London at the time. My oldest aunt was like the first black woman to integrate the convent school in Trinidad, like mm-hmm. literally, you know, like, yeah. so, um, you know, she's quite a bit older than my mom. So she was at the time working in London, Paris. And so when my mom left, she was living with her, but she got into, she had to study alone. She had never had any, if you know anything about the British system, you have to take like O levels and A levels. So my mm-hmm. mom had to do these exams by herself, like not in school, just studying the books by herself. And she was wow. able to the University of Cardiff to study chemistry. And that's where she met my dad, who was Welsh. So, And when, and you grew up in Winnipeg. When did you move to Winnipeg? Yeah, so we came to uh, Canada when I was like seven, mm-hmm. which is my seventh birthday. And then we were in Winnipeg and then I came to Halifax University. Okay. And uh, that leads itself to another question. It seemed like when you moved to, to Nova Scotia, that really sort of uh, sparked your, your activism. Uh, can you, what was it about Nova Scotia that sort of made you really sort of follow that path? In, Black woman. In, yeah. yeah <laughs> um, the, lo- the longer explanation is obviously I'm mixed race. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up, I mean, maybe there's more in Winnipeg now. There was like nothing for black people in Winnipeg at the time. I know that when you go to like national black things, people are from the prairies, like, oh, there's nothing. So there definitely wasn't. We didn't have like Black History Month. Um, Like I said, I I mean, I was very, you know, I wasn't living with my, you know, we weren't living with our family in Trinidad. So, you know, it's like there wasn't a lot of black connection. People Mm -hmm. think I'm indigenous. Like when I'm in Winnipeg, I get stopped for like being indigenous. You know, I feel like a little dry. I became stopped by cops. I didn't know why. And I'm like, oh, they thought I was native, right? Like, so there's much more indigenous stuff in Winnipeg than black stuff. Um, So there just wasn't a lot. And then I came out here and it was Barb Hamilton Hinch. I was out here for school. And I remember Barb Hamilton Hinch was a black student advisor. And like, you know, Barb would like not even be wearing her shoes. And like, you know, came sprinting (laughs) across campus to be like, you're black, right? You know, like. Why aren't you coming up to the Black Student Advising Center, you know? So it was mm-hmm. really, I guess, until that time, I hadn't, I knew I was Black. Like, I knew my family history. My mom's very, very strong on family history. But I hadn't, right. I suppose, in some ways, felt like I had a right. You know, like, mm-hmm. as, as, like, mixed race people, you, 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 like, am I Black? Like, as you're going yeah. through that period of time, like, you know, will other Black people like me? <laughs> so, yeah, it was really Barb. And then um, Tinky was the next step. So Barb Hamilton oh, yeah. was really like you're black and you know, you owe it to other black students to help tutor and stuff. And like, just really allowed me to be myself in that sense. And like, oh, wow. with myself. And then, um, the first political stuff I was doing with was Tinky, Denise Allen, um, environmental racism in Lincolnville. And mm-hmm. I, this is when I had started doing poetry and I, maybe I mentioned the poem. I can't remember. Anyway, she, had, I ended up with her knocking on doors in the square, handing out like flyers about environmental racism and how Africa mm-hmm. was environmental racism. And that was like the first action I did. Um, mm-hmm. And with like people from Lincolnville and stuff. So yeah, in other words, black women happened. Like black women, you know, saw me and, and uh, let me be myself and gave me myself and mm-hmm. uh, really, you know, like did that thing that people do here where they're like, you're black, right? So like what well, you yeah. do people why didn't i see you at this like why aren't you coming right. and that was just really important for me so yeah mm-hmm. I'll, I'll hail up african nova scotian black women <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> do you know if you have any sort of family do you have any immediate family in in nova scotia i mean jones is a very i mean yeah, I'm a jones. Well, that's the story is that there's five jones brothers and three of them stay here and two of them go to trinidad so okay. it's like there's some historic connection i don't know though i mean we're african diasporic people like who knows where yeah. we're from, you know yeah it's very but, true it's very true um, yeah and then i had a, a cousin actually that came out here that was uh the first black principal of this of a school out here um the french school i forget what it was called buffet or something like that um okay. so she um god now i'm gonna blank her name Anne edwards annie yeah. edwards 
So yeah, I had actually a cousin out here for years. Mm-hmm. Um, part of when I was coming out here, my mom, you know how your family is. Well, at least you have someone out there. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, I, I don't know. I mean, there seems to be some historical ties, but I, I don't want to like bank on those. I don't know. Right, right. right. Yeah. The, office, you just, the, the records office burned down in Trinidad in like 1960. So the only right. thing anybody knows is like yeah. your family knows. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds like you've really sort of obviously made your home in Nova Scotia and you really have a sort of really feeling for its uh, roots. Now, what role do you think poetry uh, as an art form contributes to activism? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm like not a person that thinks words are action. Like, despite mm. being a writer, I think action is action. But I think yes. um, poetry definitely. Um, Tony K. Bambadis Barra says the uh, responsibility of an artist representing a marginalized community is to make revolution seem ir- irresistible. And, mm-hmm. you know, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois said, um, I don't give a damn for any art that is not also propaganda, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, that tradition that's come through the Black arts tradition of, yeah, like art is politics. So, um, yeah, like speaking to people in ways that they understand, like, you know, people are going to attend, you know, we have all these Zooms on abolition stuff. People are going to attend mm-hmm. that. Like you have to be at a certain, like, engagement of political and time and the privilege and, you know, like the access, all of those things. Um, so, you know, people are necessarily going to come sit on a three hour Zoom where like academics discuss the principles of abolition. But if you're at a rally against street checks and it's in a poem, people mm-hmm. understand that. Like black people aren't stupid. Black people understand all the pieces of how to put everything together. Just right, something, like the word is being used differently. Right. So mm-hmm. when you said, like, you know, when you start saying defund the police, people are like, I don't know what that means. The minute you explain it, people are just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like they spend all this money on like cameras in the parking lot. And mm-hmm. then we can't get social assistance. You're like, exactly. Right. So yeah. like black people have all the pieces and all the understanding and all the knowledge, like nobody needs to give that to anybody. Um, mm-hmm. But like poems can just help make those connections as you're listening or, you know, listen to a piece of art or watching a film. And you're like, okay, yeah. I've always thought that I hadn't necessarily said it that way. Now I can say it, or now I have the words or now I've seen it in a different way or express something I already know. So I think that's what art does. Just bring that out of us. It's mm-hmm. true. And hip hop also over the yeah. years yeah. has yeah. always sort of been a platform Definitely. for for that. So that's Definitely. pretty good. Yeah. You know, that's intellectual work, right? That like mm-hmm. our art as black people is always like not treated as art, you know? So, we were doing F for the police in like 1990, right? Like yeah. that's not the conversation we're having now. <laughs> like about yeah, police yeah. violence yeah. and like police commit violence. You can't catch them. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we were saying that stuff in hip hop, anti-state, anti-police, like the prison industrial complex, all that's been expressed through our music for generations. Yeah, for yeah, generations, definitely. for sure. Yeah, definitely. You, you yeah. know, you mentioned defund the police, the Halifax board of uh, police commissioners, they, they appointed you to study that, that concept. Uh, what what's been the outcome of that? Um, so with, we're we're just <laughs> advertising the public hearings now. Um, oh, okay. It meant that like you can't be in person, so um, right. it's been harder and harder to meet as a committee. But we have been meeting and doing the research. And the last piece is the public engagement sessions, which are supposed to be on June nineteenth. So people oh, sign up for that. There's also a survey that people can take. Um, so we're actually just putting the final touches on just a quick website that people have. So all those materials are ready, they're vetted by the committee. And we're hoping that like average people will just like either fill out the survey or like answer a couple of questions if you work for a nonprofit, or you can show up in person and do it at a hearing. So there's lots of ways or take part in a focus group, which members mm-hmm. of the committee. Are so there's lots of ways for people to be part of that. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the last stage is that public engagement piece of getting to hear from community and what people think and what people want and what they imagine. So that's the stage you're at. 
Oh, excellent. Awesome. So what, what would you consider a successful outcome of that, uh, that, that process? So it's not oriented towards the government. I mean, they've refunded the police. I, I don't doubt <laughs> continue to do that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if we need more funding, it's, it's for us. You know, there's a lot of conversations, particularly for the Black community, that go on that take sort of ages to make their way down to us. Like, we're often left out of policy. Like we weren't included in the conversation about legalizing cannabis, even though at that point, about 50% of drug stops are actually being made on Black people. Mm-hmm. That's a really strong example because there's every study shows that all races use and possess drugs at the exact same rate, right? Yeah. So, in fact, sometimes white people are slightly more, but it's either like white people slightly more or everybody equal, yet Black people make up a huge amount of drug stops, which something also shown in the Wortley Report. Yet Black people were not at, at, at the table, I don't really like the phrase, but we weren't really consulted at all a part of the policy around like when cannabis was so-called legalized which it wasn't legalized they actually added more charges than ever and like now there's yeah. like 48 charges you can get for cannabis up from three yeah but you know we didn't get amnesty and we're just getting that now um we didn't get um you know any kind of reparation like get to have dispensaries you know they didn't reserve licenses for us to sell cannabis that could have repaid the community there were a lot of black people working in dispensaries that actually lost their jobs when mm-hmm. we moved to provincial model, like a lot of black men that were actually part of that industry that then lost that opportunity to make money. So that was a huge failing in terms of how that should have responded to the criminalization of black yeah. people provided us business opportunities. We should have been given preferential licenses to sell and grow marijuana, which could have allowed our communities to like actually thrive. And instead mm-hmm. they basically concentrated in the government because we weren't there. You know, mm. so I, I think it's just important for us to like talk about these things. There's a push yeah. now on decriminalizing drugs, but black people aren't talking about it. Mm. Um, we are talking about it. We're just not talking about it like publicly. It's, when I, unless it's like uh, racial profiling, it's not considered an actual black issue. So right. I just think that, you know, we need to have that information. So I see this as more of an exercise for community, like not just our community, like the community as a whole to start thinking about what it is we want, because then we'll pressure Politicians. So it's not that I think tomorrow there's going to be a report and everyone's going to be like, oh, I read this report. Let's defend the police. It doesn't work that way, but it gives us some information, some conversation, some basis to start. I'll be happy, happy if we get cop free mental health as a pilot. Um, yeah. I think that's about the most we're going to get out of it, like as an immediate. Yeah. Um, probably something like, I think we can get cop free mental health. I think we can get some push on stuff like that. Do I think they're going to defund the police? No, but I yeah. didn't think that starting it. I thought it was important. Um, like these, these reports are always white men. They're never black people, even though the ideas come from us. And I thought it was important to have a black woman um, mm-hmm. doing some of this. Like we also, you know, the Wortley report, this, the McDonald Taylor, like it's never the name of a black person on any of these reports, even though like it's our intellectual work and our, we've been the ones talking about this stuff. So I thought that was mm-hmm. important. I thought it's important just to have something as a document for us to look at and say, oh, we could shift resources here. This is what we want to do. This is what people are saying. And then use that to organize our communities because that change doesn't come from the government down. It has to come from the top up from us. So yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. Communities want something like then we have to push for it. Yeah. yeah it's, it's tough <laughs> that, uh, that reallocation of resources that have been allocated for, uh, policing for decades. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's tough to crack that, uh, that nut. Definitely. Yeah. And just narratives about crime and punishment. I saw cop mm. dog patrol so i think cops are good you know i played with cop legos so i think cops, you know like it's just like you know and like my sister you know her kid when she got a alphabet book and it's like j is for justice and it's like a picture of the rcmp you know um 
So you have to fight through a lot of social conditioning on these things, right? You mm-hmm. just want murderers running the street. Well, what about rapists, you know? Um, like those kind of questions. And I'm not saying those are illegitimate questions. Like what do we do with serious crime is a question. I'm not denying it. I just mean that, you know, it's hard for people to necessarily see that conversation. And then I think in Canada, a lot of that conversation has only been happening like in universities. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's important that it, it makes its way down in whatever way to other people um, mm-hmm. just in community are talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, I uh, just want to kind of switch gears a little bit. How do you inject Black Canadian content into your curriculum when you're uh, kind of formulating your, your plans for the, the year when you're doing your teaching? teaching? Yeah. Um, well, for a certain extent, it will just be like natural. I mean, you almost end up always teaching like Robin Maynard, policing black lives, if you're teaching anything on crime. Um, I wouldn't say I go out of my way to do it. I'd say it just happens because it's very often, you know, the materials you're referring to. So depending on what I'm teaching, you know, I was teaching gender and law this year. So obviously we studied like black woman intersectionality. Like, um, you know, you have to start with Crenshaw there. We, uh, we read pieces by black women about like the prison industrial complex and mm-hmm. women. Angela Davis is there, you know, Miriam Kaba, Ruthie Gilmore, people in Canada, um, Christina Sharp, Dion Bratton. Like those are just important names anyway. People from here that, um, whether or not it's like a formal essay, you know, like you have the words and work of someone like Lynn Jones or, um, you know, Dolly Williams is working in like the um, care sector for a long time or whatever it is. Right. So I just think when you have a, the knowledge of what black people are doing, it's not hard to include it. So I wouldn't say that I even like go out of my way. It's just, it would just be there because if I'm thinking about, you know, who's critiquing like corporations and neoliberalism, I'm teaching corporate crime, like how black people's reading of like corporations, slavery and financial industry coming out of slavery is part of that critique. Right. So when we teach when I get to the section on the historic corporate crime, it begins with slavery, right? So mm-hmm. then you're going to be teaching black people on that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just kind of part of black studies really is, mm-hmm. you know, it's everywhere. We're te- typically ignored, but um, most concepts we've already thought through and you really can't teach without it. So the real question is why do white professors or mainstream professors find it so difficult to find and include black content mm-hmm. when... Right. Black content is generally indispensable for most of the topics like we're teaching, mm-hmm. especially in like politics, uh, criminology, sociology. I don't see how you would avo- evade teaching content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. yeah interesting. It, um, just another side note, actually, uh, would like to get your, uh, your opinion on, um, on some of the recent happenings in the States. We, there, there was that huge, um, decision uh down in minnesota and then just as as it was happening you know dante dante wright mm-hmm. was killed but you know what what's your take on that and and um the the way that the canadian media actually covers that as if it's kind of like a holier than now look at them down there kind of attitude i want to get your take on that yeah. Yeah. Just during the Derek Chauvin trial alone, there was like 64 killings of black people in what, like the three weeks that trial was taking place. Mm-hmm. So Chauvin is like the rare cop to be um, a convicted. And then, I mean, we don't know what the sentencing will be, but it looks like they will actually give him a sentence as opposed to with Laquan McDonald, where that cop was convicted, but got like six years and then mm-hmm. one, you know, so. Um, but that's the system trying to preserve itself, right? So yeah. I understand it's hard because like black people are like, can't you just let us be happy for like one minute, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Like that's true that, you know, we need these minutes to pause and celebrate and feel something. But 
I think we also have to be realistic about why in that moment Chavan was convicted. And I don't think it had to do with the system realizing that it was unjust. I think it had to do with staving off. Um, they were, they'd rather sacrifice Chauvin than deal with the consequences of what Yeah, the backlash. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I think they basically were throwing us a bone and then they argued that that would preserve the system. So I have this like long rant. It's probably too, um, let me condense this rant. I've long had a rant <laughs> about how every civil rights movie, like every movie about black people is set in a courtroom, right? Like Mississippi burning, Amistad, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and that's the reason because it, the white system wants to say, sure, there's mistakes, but don't worry, you can still correct it through all white systems. So if you go to court, it's the white lawyer that's going to stop lynchings, the white lawyer that's going to help you, right? Mm. So that's that, sure, you know, it's a bad apple argument. All we have to do is adjust things, right? So that's what they want to tell us is that you can seek justice just through getting the right verdict and the right jury and just adjusting some things. And we're saying, no, we have to change the actual system, mm-hmm. the relationship of capitalism that black people have been property in this system since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're not addressing the relationship between slavery, capitalism, and racism, which you know is the whole root of what we're experiencing, a couple of black jurors on a you know European like system that's based in colonialism and patriarchy and racism isn't really going to help us, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think that we have to be very clear-eyed around what is happening in this moment and how systems are trying to preserve themselves very badly from the mass movement of white people, of black people. So they're trying to co-opt us. They're trying to water down what we're saying. They're trying to give us a little bit of money, sprinkle some government money among mm-hmm. us, all in the hopes it will break solidarity and some people will, you know, okay, I, I got my job. So, you know, I got what I need out of this. And we've seen that happening, like the critiques of uh, Patricia Colors and the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which are real critiques by the chapters and the victims' families about how, you know, are you actually serving our community or did you end up taking that money for yourself? And that isn't a description mm-hmm. to the work of Black Lives Matter as like the average person who put on that t-shirt and came in the street. But that person and those people who lead that movement have ended up doing what we saw in South Africa, what we see all over the places. People get into power and then they start taking the money and power for themselves because we haven't mm-hmm. changed what power looks like. And we as yeah. Black people need to say power can look differently. Um, does, do I need to have a huge mansion built off the backs of other Black people to be successful as a Black person or is success when all of my people are housed? And that's what we're trying to shift, I think, as people, you know, that we have to change how we think about our own positioning. So mm-hmm. uh, as far as the Canadian media goes, yeah, I mean, the Canadian media doesn't know what Black people say. Like, we were all on the news with uh, Trudeau wearing blackface. Then we weren't on the news <laughs> again until the summer, you know, like, you know, and then you're like, oh, here I am back on the news, you know, what a shock, you know? So, I mean, we, we remain only valuable voices um, when we have something to say that they think is about racism or race. They don't think mm-hmm. that uh, we have commentary on the daily economic flow of Canada or like the basic issues going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Like, so, so yeah, I mean, race in Canada is always, they only care when it happens in the States. And then they always act like what we're doing is somehow secondary to what's happening in the States, as though the States drives everything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, one of the reasons why we don't have a Black Lives Matter chapter officially in Halifax isn't because we were late to the game. It's because we were early to the game and people that were organizing at that time were like, why would we adopt something from the States when we had Buff here and we had Rocky here and we had all these Mm -hmm. movements? Um, We don't need to adopt something from somewhere else. Like we have our own history of political movement and we don't need to legitimize it by something else. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we always have to remember our own histories, like in this province, you know, we're coming up, I think this summer on, um, 
30 years of um, the Godigan Street riots. Oh, yeah. yes. Jay, do you remember? Oh, yeah. my yeah. goodness. We, we, were, we lived right at the corner yeah, where it was right? happening. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Do an episode on that, right? Like, you know, we don't talk about that as a, an early, like, anti-police movement, right? Yeah, that's but, true. And anti, like, it was people starting challenging the dress codes at the bar, right? Mm. And people came out. And they actually were pro. So it was, it was a, a big form of resistance taking place in the context of the Young Street battles in Toronto and Rodney King in LA. And this mm-hmm. was Nova Scotia responding, Halifax responding. And we don't, you know, talk that much about it, but it's an important yeah. moment, right? We don't even yeah. know our own histories of rebellion, right? I know. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, we're, this is a part of the reason why we're lending our voice to this, try and get it out. Yeah, yeah, at least you guys were like in the middle of that, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think one of the biggest things we've learned just from doing these is just having the conversations about how you feel. And once you start to feel how you feel about something, then you can start to sort of talk about it. And then, you know, if you can, Derek and I just have been having these amazing conversations and it sort of made us want to lend our voice. And, and the biggest thing, like even Rocky Jones to mention his name, he said years ago that he always knew that blacks would be okay on an individual basis, but he worried about the black community. So it seems like we sort of have to get back that to find those strength in numbers where at least we can all sort of feel that collective energy. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially now, because the big thing now is that as, you know, BLM became popular we also saw you know all these institutions like universities courts whatever being like we stand with blm like weren't you being racist to me like yesterday (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know um but we have to think about what that means like yeah what it means when a university is suddenly saying you know oh we want to hire black people we want to give scholarships to black students like black people didn't exist yesterday so like what does that mean right um Mm. and part of that is defocusing us right convincing us that like as long as a couple more of us get to be uh, judge or you know university president then there's no problem like but people are living in housing and can you know the rents get going up as it's like privatized you know obviously mm-hmm. people are in prisons people are in shelters people can't pay their bills people can't get their child care people are being investigated by child welfare and until we're dealing with those issues you know i don't know the place to start is with the the most privileged among us and i count myself in that i just got you know tenured so i'm not saying i i'm not you know what i mean like but mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't consider that to be some kind of victory for all Black people. It helps me out. It means that I don't have to, you know, live check to check anymore. But does that mean that, therefore, that matters to somebody living in housing? when exactly. the come? No, because we have to deal with that. You know, mm-hmm. we can't consider that. So I don't like the sort of, you know, first grade or, you know, the greatest or the list of the whatever, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's all of us that's important. You know, as you say, like, all Black lives matter. Right. And yeah. so all Black Lives Matter, none of our lives matter. So mm-hmm. we're always as vulnerable as the least um, loved amongst us. Right. So I think that's just really important to keep remembering and keep pushing on. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this is great. Again, thank you very much for joining us. Um, yeah. Do you have any parting words at all? Any Anything you want to put out there in the, the podcast first? No, I mean, I remain very, you know, like, I mean, African Nova Scotia, I know, you know, it's like a family. So, you know, it's like back and forth and people don't always agree and people all, you know, but as a place, it's one of those things where then when you go somewhere else, you're like, oh man, <laughs> at least in Nova Scotia, we act, at least in Nova Scotia, we this. So I there's a lot of power here. People know who they are. People mm-hmm. know their own history, the history of their name. People are rooted 
people have community. And that's really powerful to say, you know, I'm from here and it's my eighth generation back. And I don't know that we um, draw, I mean, people know that, but I mean, I I don't know if people realize how powerful that is. Like coming Mm -hmm. from a place like Winnipeg where there wasn't, there's black people in a community, but that's not the same as a black community. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I've gone around the world now, you know, and like um, there is something really powerful in this community that we really don't always value because mm-hmm. when you live in a place, you like think about its dysfunction and things that like get on your nerves and like, I don't like this person. And this is, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, yes, that's human. Right. But mm-hmm. we have a really powerful history of organizing ourselves here. And we have, you know, really powerful elders that have survived and seen a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and being here, I would say like, I owe everything in terms of my writing and in terms of my activism to this province, it wouldn't have happened anywhere else because of the particular history, the particular mm-hmm. people like Rocky Jones who picked out young people and like literally molded you and, and encouraged mm-hmm. you. Like I remember when I was doing poems at like Black History Month back in the day, you know, and I'd be like talking about police and prisons and stuff like, you know, before it was cool, right? And everybody yeah. was getting yeah. like really mad at me, you know? And Rocky would be there in the back just like pumping <laughs> his fist and making me feel so good. And you know, the older Black women who call me and continue to do so, either just to be like, good job on that thing you did or you know, like talk slow or whatever, you know, yeah. but like, yeah. you know, like that's really valuable. And I think for younger people, um, you know, don't turn down that relationship to your elders and that history mm. like, that mm. we live among. It's so important to shape what we're doing. Lynn yeah. Jones every day reminds us, you know, like whatever you're doing, she said, well, did you talk to community about that? Well, like, did you talk to community about that? Did you take that back to community? Just reminding us that, you know, we live in a community and we owe each other other things. So I think that's really valuable and that's really important to me. And and I'm not always living up to those values. And I make mistakes. I'm a human being like anybody else, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, activists don't talk enough about the mistakes we make and, you know, how often we do things wrong and how often you're like, oh, why did I, why did I do that thing? You know, but yeah. uh, we just have to keep pushing forward. So yeah, together in community and like finding common ground and working together. And it's great that you're mm-hmm. doing this podcast and getting that stuff out there too. Awesome. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Are you still doing the uh, CKDU yeah, but uh, COVID, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so I, we, we just couldn't get it together. It's hard to like film it, you know, do the whole thing, cut it. Mm-hmm. Like, we barely get it together. You know, we're like an hour before the show. We're like, what's the news? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You know how it is. So we're like, yeah. I don't know if we can do that. And then the building was supposed to open. And then right, right. when we were going back, it didn't open. So it's, yeah. so we are still doing it. Um, We've yeah. done other projects through BPH. So what we're talking about is Black Power Hour on CKD. Yes, yeah. yeah. sorry. Yeah. At uh, Normally when we're on the air, Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Um, we've done other initiatives. So we've done podcasts and we've done like um, actions. We were doing a film series last year. So we continue to do stuff through BPA. Right. It's not the show, but we're looking forward to doing it again. Cool. And how long have you been doing that? It's been quite a while. Yeah, um, BPH is like since 2015. Okay. And then we were on the radio before that. But um, right. BPH specifically, and I got a shout out Randy Riley here. Um, maybe he wants to come on your show. I don't know. Um, so BPH is co-founded by Randy Riley, who is wrong okay. for please go to whoisrandyriley.com to okay. see Randy's story as he fights his wrongful conviction. He's currently out on bail, which is a huge step forward um, as his case, his conviction was vacated by the Supreme Court. It's a really um, awful case that many people, of course, will recognize the daily injustices of the um, justice system towards African Nova Scotians. Uh, Randy was accused and convicted of killing a white man. Um, no forensics evidence. Somebody else confessed to the crime. Um, like literally um, no witnesses, nothing, like literally nothing. Um, The main witness has now recanted his testimony and said that the police coerced him. They paid him, which didn't come up in court, which the Crown knew he had been paid. 
um, the cop lied on the stand, like all kinds of misconduct, evidence that went missing. Um, and, you know, he ended up convicted and has spent most of his 20s in prison. So wow. um, we've been fighting that case for a long time um, and we continue to fight it. And Randy continues that struggle. So, uh, you know, an African Nova Scotian man from Cherry Brook, um, mm -hmm. who the first thing he did when he got out was look for jobs for people in his community. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was led black men during the time he was incarcerated. Um, really powerful person. Um, and yeah, so so that and he's one of the co-founders of our radio show. So okay, okay. check out who is Randy Rally dot com. Okay. Many people are, are like vibing without wearing the shirts and stuff, and continuing to fight for him. Jay Jones, Excellent. we're gonna reach out to uh, Randy, man. Oh, um, for sure, man. Let's yeah, do it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. my family's actually from Cherry Brook, so yeah, I might yeah. be able to. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm Betty together. Drummond. Like, I haven't been home in a long yeah, time. Yeah. I, I moved away. I moved <laughs> yeah. away in, in uh, '96. So yeah, it's been... like farming the land right now. On <laughs> like, you know, so which is really important, you know. And like uh, yeah. a brilliant young African Nova Scotian man who's faced a huge injustice and is still mm -hmm. fighting. And I find him really inspiring. So yeah, that's awesome. great. Yeah, yeah. We need to we need to see more people like that. You know, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's like I said us doing this podcast and looking back at our Nova Scotian roots, it's just been so inspiring. And just to, to know that resilience of strength that we do have and where it really came from. And sometimes, like you say, you know, you get caught up in your own life and forget about those things. Mm -hmm. But now but more than ever. I got to ask, where's your Jones from? Um, originally from Truro, Nova Scotia. Okay, my family was Jones. one of the, my, my family was one of the first black families to settle in Truro. And then uh, my great grandfather, I was raised by uh, Sidney Morgan Jones. He was a member of the first uh, Black Battalion that fought in the First World War and had strong ties to Cornwall Street Baptist Church. And Rocky is my my uncle, um, you know. So uh, yeah, and, and I'm starting to sort of look at that 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 part of my life that I kind of just forgot, you know. And um, and that was my own journey. But to look back and, and, and know that I have that strength to pull from makes it easier to sort of navigate this life a little bit. And I'd forgotten that, you know? Yeah. It was a serious business, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I was researching uh, my um, family history, I ran across Jones and the, the, the Book of Negroes more than once, man. So, yeah. The first settler of um, Africa. No, that's Brown, sorry. Um, mm, yeah. But there's Jones every, but yeah. Um, and I know, I don't know if you know the story of Jeremiah Jones potentially having been murdered from fighting the road mm -hmm. coming and stuff like it's powerful, yeah. you know, as yeah, all Nova Scotia. I think the important thing about African Nova Scotians is that um, every single person here is the descendant of a self-liberated black person. Mm -hmm. powerful, right. Like people either freed themselves um, as refugees of the War of 1812, came up as loyalists, yeah. um, you know, like people here are people who freed themselves. And that mm -hmm. spirit is like through Africville, through North Preston, through the founding and making of communities, holding those communities down, keeping an identity, like all of that. You know, Richard Preston walking literally, you know, 17 times across his province to found the AUBA. Mm -hmm. Like wow. you're, uh, the Panthers coming here, like the resistance mm -hmm. in the 60s. Like there's just a, a really long and powerful history and spirit here. So, you know, we don't necessarily know enough about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Jay Jones, you want to take us out? You kind of did already, but yeah, I guess we just did. But uh, thank you so much for for coming on and, and speaking with passion and um, sharing a little bit of your story and and some stories stories that we don't even know. Um, and uh, uh, you know, you're you 
you know, you've made Nova Scotia your home and you're really a true inspiration. So thanks for sharing with thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Breaking new crab, breaking new crab, breaking new crab, breaking new crab. You have been listening to Down Home. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Breaking new From the one down below to the, the song Breaking New Ground from the breakdown. With the force from the soul, reaching all aspects, getting deep, no time to sleep as you reach your next phase. Laying it all on the line, new trail stop to blaze. It's a fire inside, a brand new path, breaking down the sum to one. Feeling free, I just laugh.